0: The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chaya Samuel and things are about to get weird. Hello, welcome back to episode 32 of Things Are About To Get Weird. Or if this is your very first time listening, a big thank you for taking a chance on a new podcast. I am over the moon that you're here. I hope you've all had a great couple of weeks and if you're in the UK like me, I hope you're enjoying the longer days and the brighter weather and feeling excited that spring is finally here. And after that lovely light and fluffy intro, let's take a sharp turn into the far less cheerful yet completely fascinating topic of today's episode. Now, when I was just about to sit down and start research on this episode's original story, I read a message from one of our wonderful listeners, Jess, who sent me a BBC News article from 2009, which blew my mind. I immediately switched my attention to this tale, and I'll cover what I was initially planning to talk about in the next instalment. I don't usually have two true crime stories back-to-back like this, I I decided to make an exception today as I simply couldn't wait to cover this one. So join me as I tell you all about the case which came to be known as the Phantom of Heilbronn, which makes it sound like it's going to be a ghost story, but it's not. This one is genuinely so strange and also really quite infuriating. We're heading to Germany for this saga so please do bear with me in terms of a few of the pronunciations. I promise I will do my best though. With this being a true crime episode there are going to be a few graphic details including a mention of someone taking their own life. But as always I'll try to get past these moments as quickly as possible. With that warning given let's get into the story. On the 25th of April, 2007, in the southwestern German town of Heilbronn, a 22-year-old policewoman named Michelle Kieswetter was eating lunch in her patrol car along with her colleague. Michelle was in the driver's seat and her partner was on the passenger side. The pair had parked up to take their break, which was nothing out of the ordinary, as on-duty police officers tend to have to stop and eat when and where they can. But the two had no idea just how fateful this shift would turn out to be. As they sat in their car, two people managed to open one of the back doors and climb into the vehicle. Before either Michelle or her partner could react, the ambush was already well underway. A gun was pulled and used on both of the police officers and their injuries were catastrophic. Michelle was actually shot in the head and died instantly as a result. Her colleague, whose name has never been released as far as I can find, was very badly hurt and ended up in a coma for several weeks. Both officers' service weapons were stolen from the crime scene. And as you can imagine, a huge search for the people responsible was launched. It was never going to be a straightforward task, however, as for the first few weeks, the key witness, Michelle's colleague, was in a coma and couldn't help provide any clues as to who their attackers could have been. And so the focus turned to the forensic evidence, which was collected from the car and its immediate surroundings. And soon investigators found DNA on the back seat of the patrol vehicle as well as on the dashboard, which they strongly believed belonged to one of the killers. The sample was sent off for analysis, and when the results came back, the police officers handling the case were completely bewildered. The DNA from the crime scene was a match for an unknown female criminal who had been nicknamed the Woman Without a Face by the German authorities. Since 1993, her DNA had been discovered at the site of numerous serious incidents, including now six different murders, as well as several robberies. Investigators hunting this elusive serial killer had so far had no luck whatsoever in apprehending her. And she was considered by the police to be the country's most dangerous woman. And now she had killed one of their own, an officer on duty. The Heilbronn police were at a loss for answers and in an attempt to help identify the woman without a face, Michelle's killer, they offered a reward which eventually reached the sum of 300,000 euros. But they were far from the first police force who had been completely stumped when it came to the identity of this suspected serial killer. Although she was thought to have carried out around 40 significant crimes across southern Germany and Austria, I'm going to focus on some of the most serious, starting with the very first murder back in the early 90s. On the 23rd of May 1993, a 62-year-old woman named Lisa Lotte Schlenger had spent the day baking and looking after her beloved pet cats at her home in the German town of Ida Oberstein. She was preparing for a visit from a close friend of hers who was due to pop round for a cup of tea and had put some lemon cakes into the oven in advance of her arrival. Lisa Lotta's friend, who lived nearby, arrived at her house at the agreed time, but there was no answer when she knocked on the front door. The friend was concerned enough to call the police as it was so unlike Lisa Lotta to be unresponsive. And when the authorities arrived, they discovered the terrible scene inside. Scattered across the kitchen table was a bouquet of flowers, and close by was the lifeless body of the 62-year-old. Lisa Lotta had been strangled with the wire used to tie the bouquet of flowers, and police knew instantly that this was a murder. Bizarrely, though, there was very little about the crime scene which looked suspicious, other than the strewn flowers. Nothing looked all that out of place and there were very few signs of a struggle. Investigators began to collect whatever evidence they could and although the gathering of DNA was still a relatively new concept at the time they thankfully did do a forensic sweep of the house and on a teacup in the kitchen the lab found DNA thought to be that of the person who killed Lotta, an unnamed female. For the next eight years, police investigating the murder heard nothing more about this culprit, as the mystery figure seemed to be laying low. That was until the year 2001. Under an eerily similar set of circumstances, a 61-year-old antique dealer from Freiburg named Joseph Walsenbach was found dead in the kitchen of his shop premises on the 21st of March of that year. Like Lotta, Joseph had been strangled, this time with a piece of wire which would have been used in the garden, though he had also been robbed. Over 200 euros had been stolen from him following the attack. On this occasion, police were able to find numerous DNA samples at the scene which pointed to the perpetrator, including on Joseph himself, on several items in his shop, on a door handle, and even on the closed sign, which looked to have been placed in a window by the killer before they left. When the DNA was analysed, it was found to be a match for that discovered on the teacup in Lotta's kitchen. And this, plus the various similarities between the methods used in both killings, led police to believe that they were witnessing the work of one common murderer. Jürgen Brower, a state prosecutor who became connected with the case, is quoted in the Sydney Morning Herald as saying this of the first two killings. So after 2001, we had two murders, not enough to classify the perpetrator as a serial killer, but with similarities small amounts of cash stolen, the same modus operandi in the way the victims died, both killings committed indoors with no sign of a break-in. This in itself suggests the killer builds up a non-threatening rapport before being let in. And the female suspect's DNA continued to show up time and time again at the sites of some seriously heinous crimes over the coming years. On certain occasions, it appeared that the woman without a face was the accomplice to a murder or would-be murder. For example, on the 6th of May 2005, two brothers in the city of Worms got into a major fight, and one of the siblings ended up pulling out a gun and shooting the other. The shot wasn't fatal, but easily could have been and a full investigation into the case was launched. Forensic analysis was carried out on several of the items involved in the crime, and when the bullets were tested, I'll give you one guess whose DNA was found on the ammunition. And the examples keep on coming. A couple of years earlier, on the 1st of January 2003, an office building near Frankfurt was the target of an orchestrated break-in which police described as looking and feeling very professional. Whilst only a small amount of money was actually stolen in the end, no fingerprints were left behind. However, a tiny sample of skin cells was found at the scene, and this was evidence enough to conclude that the woman without a face was the person responsible. Then there were the altogether more bizarre incidents, which, when added into the overall picture of the person they were hunting for, only made matters more confusing. In 2001, the mystery female's DNA was found on a discarded syringe which had been used to take heroin. The needle was turned into police by a frantic mother whose young son had accidentally stepped on it whilst running around a playground in the town of Gerolstein. Just a couple of weeks after this, Police attended a burglary scene which had taken place at a caravan, where they found a discarded biscuit which looked as though it had been spat out. When it was tested for DNA, it looked as though the woman without a face had struck again. Due to the nature of the crimes, police began to theorise that the woman was perhaps a drug user who travelled around mostly southern Germany, breaking into homes and businesses to steal what she could. There were suggestions that she could be tied up with several other criminals, hence why her DNA was sometimes found at the scenes of crimes where she would have been an accomplice rather than the direct perpetrator. From this, the train of thought went that if she was part of some kind of gang or organisation, it wasn't that unusual that her identity would be so secretive, as the likelihood of someone else in the gang giving up her name was very slim. Now, after the murder of police officer Michelle Kiesfetter in 2007, the pressure was really on to identify the faceless woman once and for all. After the killing, the suspect was re-nicknamed the Phantom of Heilbronn. And if you watch a lot of true crime documentaries or listen to a lot of podcasts, you may know that this is a tactic sometimes used by investigators or journalists to bring new attention to a wanted perpetrator. One of the most notable examples of this in recent history is that of the Golden State Killer. Until around 2013, he had been known as the Visalia Ransacker and then the East Area Rapist. And when the authorities realised his DNA was identical to the person they had been calling the original Night Stalker, these names were combined into the catch-all term Eurons, but it was all quite confusing. In 2013, the legendary late journalist Michelle McNamara coined the term Golden State Killer in order to bring new awareness to the case. And as many of us know, Michelle's work ended up being a key factor in the case remaining in the public eye and eventually being solved. I could do a whole series of episodes on that case, but as many of the developments took place so recently, I feel that it's been covered by other podcasts from every possible angle you could imagine. So there is already plenty of amazing content out there about the capture and imprisonment of the Golden State Killer. Anyway, apologies for that tangent, but it's an excellent illustration of how effective these alternate names can be in cases like this. So in 2008, things got even stranger when the bodies of three murdered Georgian car dealers were discovered in a river just south of Frankfurt. Two men, one from Somalia and one from Iraq, were found guilty of the killings and jailed. But when investigators carried out forensic testing on a car belonging to one of the men, the DNA results once again matched with the Phantom of Heilbronn. The crimes that she was being tied to were getting more and more random and police were scrambling trying to work out what possible links there could be between them all. The story had naturally gripped the town of Heilbronn and beyond. A local taxi driver named Christoph Braun was quoted in The Guardian as saying, Of course I'm following the case of the Phantom. We all are. Every few weeks, it seems, there's a story that this DNA has been found at a crime scene somewhere else. Who knows? Maybe the Phantom is even dead. And some other criminal is leaving traces of her DNA to fool the police. But it wasn't until a year later that the authorities got a lead in the case which would finally give them some answers. In March of 2009... Police in France were investigating a truly awful incident in which a man's body had been found almost completely burned. As they looked into the case, they started to believe that their John Doe was an asylum seeker who had been missing in France since 2002. Sadly, I wasn't able to find his name. I'm not sure that it was ever actually released. But after this connection was established, police were able to find his initial asylum application file. Now within this file were the man's fingerprints, which he had given after first arriving in France. The idea was that from these, police would be able to carry out DNA testing in order to positively identify him as the man whose body had been discovered. But what they found instead was the DNA of the phantom. And at this point, if your eyebrows are raised and you're thinking that this can't be right, you are correct. It was impossible that the DNA from the John Doe, who was a biological male, and the Phantom, who was a biological female, were a match. And so, with the authorities completely baffled, the DNA from the fingerprint sample was tested once again. And this time, no match to the Phantom was found. And as the implications of this discovery sunk in and the puzzle pieces started to fall into place, investigators back in Germany came to a stunning realisation. The nickname of The Phantom was more fitting than they could have ever predicted, because the serial killer they were hunting didn't exist. I know, this is absolutely wild. For over 15 years, the police had been searching for a murderer and following a forensic lead that would take them absolutely nowhere because the DNA hadn't come from anyone involved in the 40-plus crimes it was linked to, at least not directly. Let me explain. Sometime prior to 1993... A factory in Bavaria was contracted to either produce or package various types of medical supplies. One such item which passed through the factory was a type of cotton swab, used for none other than the collection of DNA samples for analysis. And at some point during the long production process, whether it was during the handling of the raw materials or the final packaging up of the swabs, a worker at the factory mistakenly contaminated a number of them with her own DNA. This could have been via something like accidentally touching the cotton ends of the swabs with her bare hands after they'd already gone through the sterilisation process, for example. But regardless of how it happened, It had sealed the fate of her genetic information now showing up on any future test carried out using those swabs. The contaminated swabs clearly found their way into a number of forensic kits and labs across Germany and other neighbouring European countries and were being used from 1993 until 2009. Once suspicions around this possibility were raised in 2009, investigators were able to go back and trace the origins of all the swabs used in the Phantom of Heilbronn cases, and sure enough, they had all been produced at the same Bavarian factory. The women who had been working at the factory during the relevant time frame were all asked to provide a DNA sample and an ironically unnamed worker was found to be the unwitting culprit. And the repercussions of this realisation were huge, not just because of the criminal cases, which we'll come to in a moment, but the wider scientific world was panicking about the possibility of it happening again. So after this absolute debacle, the ISO, which is the International Organisation for Standardisation, stepped in to make sure the likelihood of history repeating itself would be drastically reduced. They published a new standard entitled Minimising the Risk of Human DNA Contamination in Products Used to Collect, Store and Analyse Biological Material for Forensic Purposes Requirements, which laid out what is essentially a huge list of guidelines for properly handling DNA samples. In an article on their website about the phantom case, Dr. Lindsay Wilson-Wild explained a little more about how the events could have transpired, saying, In recent years, DNA analysis techniques have acquired an increased sensitivity, resulting in profiles being produced from consumables which have had genomic DNA deposited on the items during the manufacturing process. And by consumables, in this case, she would mean the single-use swabs. But the science aside, there were the serious law enforcement consequences to think about. While police had been distracted, thinking they were hunting down a serial killer in the most serious cases and a notorious burglar in the others, they'd ended up spending a decade and a half overlooking the true perpetrators of many of the crimes. There's every chance that the true criminal's DNA was correctly lifted from each scene, using the contaminated swabs, but was never picked up during analysis because it was so overshadowed by the large deposit of the factory worker's genetic material. So, following the reveal of the phantom as an innocent party, what became of the more shocking cases that had been incorrectly blamed on her Well, unfortunately, in the cases of both Lisa Lotte Schlenger and Joseph Walzenbach, I couldn't find any further updates whatsoever. I try to have some hope that perhaps their real killers have been found and only reported in the German media, which is why I haven't been able to find any articles in English about it. But realistically, I just don't think any evidence remains for this to be able to happen. It genuinely infuriates me to my core to think that their murderers have just spent their lives walking free, all because of something as simple as a contaminated cotton swab, but that is the nature of this story, it's just completely bizarre. In many of the cases where the phantom was thought to be an accomplice, I think it's fairly safe to say that those convicted of the crimes probably acted alone. And in those instances, at least the right person was held accountable rather than just not searched for in the first place. But when we get to the killing of Michelle Kiesvetter, things get altogether stranger. Every now and again, when I'm researching a story for the podcast, I'll stumble across an article about a certain element of a case and be stopped in my tracks. And that's exactly what happened in this instance. I did some more digging into what became of Michelle's murder case, expecting that perhaps it was a robbery gone wrong, as both officers' service weapons were stolen, or even that the murderers were a couple of disgruntled known criminals with a vendetta against the police force. What I found was that Michelle was actually killed by two members of a neo-Nazi terrorist cell in a targeted attack. The reasoning behind the ambush is quite odd, but from what I understand, it seems that Michelle's stepfather had been interested in renting a pub in eastern Germany, but was outbid by a man with ties to the far-right group known as the NSU, or National Socialist Underground. I can only assume that, at some point within the bidding process, Michelle herself had encountered a couple of members of the NSU, or at least been told about them in detail, given what happened next. In 2011, two known neo-Nazis and NSU members, Uwe Bonhart and Uwe Munlos, were found dead after taking their own lives. After investigators began searching apartments known to have been hideouts for the pair and other NSU affiliates, they not only found clothing with Michelle's blood on it, but both Michelle's and her colleagues' service weapons. Police concluded that the two officers were attacked after Bonhart and Mundlos thought Michelle had recognised them around Heilbronn, which I thought was a bit of a stretch at first. But then I realised the town Michelle was born and raised in is the same town as that pub was in. So her and her family's connection to the area is much more solid than I first understood. But details and logistics aside, this is a truly shocking conclusion to Michelle's story on top of an already bewildering backstory involving the Phantom. I wanted to round off this story with one of the most interesting observations I made during my deep dive into it, and that was the way it was reported prior to 2009. There are dozens and dozens of articles from huge established news sources, which, of course, really do go hard on presenting the woman without a face slash Phantom of Heilbronn story as this sensational saga about a mystery female murderer. For example, there's still a piece from The Telegraph up online from 2008 with the headline, Europe's most prolific female serial killer strikes again. The Guardian piece I mentioned earlier was also published in 2008 and talks of the race to catch Germany's female serial killer and details many of the ways the police believed she was evading capture, from wearing gloves to leaving no witnesses by carrying out her crimes swiftly. Of course, hindsight is 2020, and naturally this is all based on what the police were telling the media at the time but it's truly fascinating to look back with the knowledge of what was really going on and read these articles through that lens. Obviously, we can hope that many lessons were learned from this case and that nothing like this would ever occur again. But to be honest with you, until I looked into this story, I'd never considered that an incident of DNA contamination like this could ever happen in the first place. I think I've always put my full faith into it and assumed that the techniques were infallible and nothing much could go wrong. But this tale has served as a useful reminder that there may sometimes be room for human error. I know I say this about a lot of our lesser known stories, but I'm genuinely quite surprised that this one has never been made into a film or at least used as inspiration for one. But you never know, it could still happen. Ultimately, I just feel terrible for the families who never received answers as to who was responsible for the death of their loved one. And I hope they took some comfort in that ISO document and the knowledge that this would now be unlikely to happen to another family. And of course, it's reassuring to know that the police forces who were supplied by that Bavarian factory stopped using those swabs and so were able to lay the phantom to rest. And focus on hunting down the real fiends. So I hope you found that absolute roller coaster of a story as bizarrely intriguing as I did. A big thank you once again to Jess for sending me that initial article about it. All I keep thinking about, you know, is how terrible the factory worker must have felt when everything came to light. It was probably a split second honest mistake that she may not have even remembered making and it just caused such chaos. This is the definition of a strange but true story to me. It's mind-boggling to look back and see the knock-on effects of one small error and how everything evolved into this scandal. As you can imagine, I devoured many an article when putting this episode together. But before I give them their shout-outs and tell you how you can get in touch and share all of your thoughts too, it's time for, drumroll please, our outro feature, Weird Media. I've just realised that there's actually a little bit of a tedious link between the film I wanted to recommend to you today and our main episode subject, but I promise it's completely unintentional. To be fair, it's only really the title that ties in with today's story, but still it's enough of a connection for me. I'm talking about the 2020 thriller starring the incredible Elizabeth Moss, The Invisible Man. I remember watching this movie in lockdown and it was fantastic. I love a psychological thriller, and when that genre is combined with Elizabeth Moss's unbelievable acting, you know it's going to be a winner. As always, with anything like a film or a book, I don't want to give too much away. But the premise of the story is that Elizabeth's character, Cecilia, is in an abusive relationship with this awful man who appears to take his own life after they break up. He's very, very wealthy and leaves her a fortune. But Cecilia begins to suspect that the whole thing is a hoax and that her ex is very much alive. I don't really want to tell you any more than that about the plot, but if you're into that horror, thriller genre and enjoy a sci-fi element to your films too, it's well worth a watch. The film is inspired by the H.G. Wells novel, The Invisible Man. I haven't personally read it, but I believe it's more loosely based on rather than being a 100% reenactment of it, if you like. But it's a fascinating ride nonetheless. When I did a quick search about the film to check a couple of details, I read that it was actually first planned back in 2006, but kept being shelved and put back until finally the timing was right to get it made in 2019. But then, of course, Covid happened. And instead of having this huge release in cinemas like the studio and filmmakers had planned, after all of the delays and reworkings and time invested into the project, the only choice that they really had was to make it available for streaming at home. And that's how the majority of audiences ended up viewing it. I would have loved to have seen it at the cinema. And I often think about how many amazing films never got that moment in the big screen spotlight due to the COVID lockdowns. But anyway, if you didn't get round to watching The Invisible Man during 2020 and it sounds like your cup of tea, I would definitely suggest giving it a go on your next movie night. It's well worth it for Elizabeth Moss's performance alone. Okay, pivoting swiftly into the shout outs for all the sources which helped me research today's story. First up, there was the initial BBC article sent to me by Jess from March of 2009. There was the Sydney Morning Herald piece, which was super helpful. That one was from November 2008. The Guardian piece by Ned Temko, which was also from November of 2008. Two articles from Der Spiegel, one from March 2009 and another from August 2012. There was a fantastic article from iflscience.com. I love that website. It features a great overview of the story and links to a lot of other deeper articles too. That one was by James Felton from January of 2021. As I mentioned, the ISO website was also very useful, both for their full standards document and that separate article about the phantom case. And finally, we had an article from thelocal.de from November 2011, which focused on Michelle's murder. I love, love, love to hear your thoughts about all of our episode topics. And there are lots of ways you can get in touch with me. On Facebook, there's both the private discussion group and the main podcast page too. If you search on Facebook for Things Are About To Get Weird, you should find both of those. I always post photos for each episode on Instagram. And our handle there is at Things Get Weird Podcast. On Twitter, it's at about to get weird. And our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. Always feel free to send me your own strange but true stories via email. It makes me so happy when I receive them and I keep a bank of them to read out in future bonus episodes with your permission, of course. We also have the Patreon page, which I will leave linked in the show notes for anyone who would like to show their support for the podcast. I'd be forever grateful if you could leave me a quick rating or review wherever you listen. I've spotted a few come in on Spotify lately and it really makes my day. Thank you so much again for joining me today and for being so patient about our current two week schedule. I have had a couple of ideas about how I could manage things so that there is weekly content for you all, but I'm just figuring out details. So please do stay tuned on that front. Until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird with a good kind of weird.